Amen. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 56. The 56th Psalm, Psalm of David. And if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. For the choir director, according to Jonath Elam Rehokim, a mitkim of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. All day long an oppressor, excuse me, an attacker oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my heels as they have hoped to take my life. On account of their wickedness, will they have an escape? In anger, bring down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In Yahweh, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will fulfill thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Indeed, my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Heavenly Father, we're just, again, grateful for this wonderful opportunity to come together to be instructed by your holy and inspired word. We pray that you would change hearts this morning through this text and that you would change them by your grace and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, the title for the message this morning is Godly Confidence in Crazy Times. Let me just ask right from the get-go, are we living in crazy times? Do you think these are crazy times? Oh, yeah. Up is down, left is right, light is dark, dark is light. What is good is called evil. What is evil is called good. It doesn't take more than a few minutes in front of a TV screen or browsing an online news feed before one realizes that we are living in some crazy mixed-up times, like a great big old fat godless delusion is plaguing this land. Crazy times indeed. Well, our text for this morning also describes some crazy times, though in a bit of a different context, and in the life of one individual in particular, one who actually uses craziness to his advantage. Though, of course, it was a feigned craziness or a faux craziness. Of course, I'm talking about King David. 
and specifically when he pretended to be insane while fleeing from the relentless pursuit of King Saul as he found himself arriving in the city of Gath. Gath, the same Gath that was one of five cities which belonged to the Philistines, David's arch enemies. The same Gath that was home to a well-known giant named Goliath. The very same Gath which surely the family of some thousands, no, tens of thousands of Philistine men and uh, men David had put to, to death on the battlefield still resided here. They probably still have family members, still have friends there in Gath. This is the Gath where David fled to in hopes of escaping the hot pursuit of King Saul, leading many, including myself, to wonder, maybe he wasn't faking it after all. Maybe this guy really is crazy. But the reasoning behind the madness in David's life at this point, however feigned or otherwise, actually came as a result of desperation. Desperation. You've heard that old saying, Desperate times call for desperate what? Measures. That's right. That's what we see here in Psalm 56. That's what we see with King David. This is what we see with King David during his time in Gath. This was a desperate man, a despondent man, a distraught man, a man on the edge of despair itself. Now, Chris and and Brad did a wonderful job detailing the historical context of David's life at this point in Psalms 52 and 54. There's no need to rehash that narrative in its entirety, but I think a quick refresher will be helpful for all of us. Let me just give you a quick reminder of of David's frame of mind during this time here. Remember, he was called from nothing. He was a young shepherd boy, yet he was anointed by Samuel to be the future king of Israel. One problem, though. Israel's current king, Saul, becomes insanely jealous and sees David for what he truly is, namely a threat to his rule. So what follows is a bizarre set of manic-like, rage-filled tactics employed by Saul to eliminate this threat, including praising David one minute and trying to pin him to a wall with a spear the very next minute, including offering David his daughter as a prize for killing 100 Philistines, only to scold that same daughter for foiling the plans to have David murdered by his messenger shortly thereafter. Uh, Finally, he, he made a promise to his son, Jonathan, made a solemn pledge that he would not kill this son of Jesse. As Yahweh lives, Saul said, David shall not be put to death. Well, we don't even get out of that chapter, even out of that paragraph, before we read for a second time. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. And then then it was on. Then it was on. Saul, with all of David's fanfare still ringing in his ears, says, eh, you know what? Promise or no promise, I'm going to kill this guy. He's dead. David takes off, says, where in the world can I go? I know. I'll go to Nob to uh, see a priest of Yahweh. Ahimelech the priest gives him some consecrated bread. He gives him the sword of Goliath. Remember this. David leaves completely alone. No friends, no servants, no army, just some bread in his belly and this big old sword in hand desperately fleeing from his pursuers. Then he comes into Gath. Gath. Not before, however, we read of Doeg the Edomite telling Saul, uh, telling Saul oh yeah, David? Oh yeah, he, he was here. That priest over there gave him some bread, gave him 
Goliath's sword. To which Saul turns around and commands his soldiers, kill this priest. Saul's guys say, you can't be serious. There's no way we're going to kill these priests. We're not going to kill the priests of Yahweh. And there Doag stands in the corner with his hands up. He says, I'll do it. I'll do it. Doag was a, a bad man. He was a bad man. I love to preach through 1 Samuel sometimes, just so I can have a sermon titled, Beware, Attack Doags on Premises. Wouldn't that be a great sermon title? I don't know if it'll happen. I don't know. This was a very bad Doag. This guy was among the worst people in all of history. Not only did he kill that priest, but all the other priests too, 85 of them and all gone, just like that. And then, though we're not told anyone asked him to do it, he turned around and killed all the inhabitants of that city as well, both men and women, infants, nursing babies, also oxen, donkeys, sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. This was an evil man, an evil, evil man. And this background should help us appreciate the desperation in David's heart. This should help us appreciate his then going into enemy territory. He says, I'm going to Gath. I have a better shot at surviving among the Philistines than I do in the company of my own king and this ruthless henchman, this hitman. So he does. He flees alone, that big old sword right into enemy territory. Until some guys from Gath recognize him, they say, Wait a second, who is that? No, no, it can't be. Uh, there is no way. The, the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has struck his thousands and David his tens, tens of thousands? Huh. All right, young man, come here. Let's bring you into the king. And Samuel says, David took these words to heart greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity in their sight and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. David greatly feared the king of Gath. He feared. All alone, in enemy territory, greatly afraid, desperately afraid, starts drooling all over himself until the king of Gath looks at him and says, man, we don't need any more crazies around here. Turn him loose. So David goes into hiding. This anointed shepherd, this hero of Israel, this champion, this commander, this man who was fawned over by all the ladies of Jerusalem as he danced naked through her streets. Here's this future king about to be the most powerful man on the earth, huddled up alone in some cave, terrified on the brink of despair. Right up until that moment, he says, be gracious to me, O God. Show me favor. Show me undeserved favor, for man has trampled upon me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. Many attack me proudly. Look at those two verses there. First two verses. Three repetitions. Trampled, trampled, 
attacked, attacked, all day long, all day long. Saul's army, even Doeg, are in hot, unrelenting pursuit. Actually, this could be translated, these men pant after me. I got a I got a pack of panting, rabid dogs hot on my heels. I need your grace. I need your divine favor. Let me ask you, have you ever cried out in such desperation? You ever cried out like this? Maybe not as a result of people who literally wanted to kill you, but maybe so. I don't know. Or or maybe something else, uh, some seemingly unbearable set of circumstances, some trial, some deep hurt or deception like we talked about last week. Some conflict where it felt like you had nowhere to, to escape, to flee. That's, that's David in this cave. So he says, be gracious to me, O God. Here's what's going on. Here, please have mercy on me in this desperate situation. You know, interestingly, this superscription here for the choir director, according to Jonath, Elam, Rehokim, uh, Mikkim of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath, is said to be set to the tune of the silent dove in distant places or distant oaks. You may see that as a heading on your Bible somewhere. I don't know what this tune sounded like, but I do remember the words from last week's psalm where David cried, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. Well, how's that working out for you, David? That whole fleeing thing. You know, running away doesn't always solve our problems, does it? In fact, most of the time it just masks our problems for a season. It just buys us some time, or at least the illusion that we've bought time. Uh, David's been fleeing without rest And he's been coming up with some clever ways to evade his pursuers, but he knows it can't go on like this. He'll have to stop running at some point. But you see, the real battle and subsequent victory doesn't begin until right here in his desperate cry for divine grace. Matthew Henry said it best, the faithful child of God fights best on their knees. The faithful child of God fights best on their knees. David knew this, so he petitioned his Lord. And guess what? God answered him by giving him true confidence in crazy times. Take note now. Look at verse 3. When I am afraid, David says. Wait, was David afraid? Was he afraid? Do, Do believers have fearful times in their lives? Do faithful men and women of God wrestle with fear from time to time? We just read. 1 Samuel 21, verse 12, And David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, the king of Gath. Well, I guess they do. I guess that's your answer. But notice the favor of God on display here. When I am afraid, David says, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise. What word are we talking about here? The scriptures? The Torah? Absolutely. The word from God spoken through David's prophets, including Samuel, who said he will be king over all of Israel? Definitely. The actual audible words from Yahweh himself to David, like, so David asked of Yahweh, saying, shall I go and strike these Philistines? And Yahweh said to David, go and strike these Philistines. Save Kayla. No doubt. 
those words as well. God's revealed word in whatever form allowed David to have godly confidence in crazy times. Now, we don't have prophets these days, nor do we have visions or audible conversations with God. If you're hearing voices from God, come see the elders after church so we can get you the help you need. We don't have anything like this today. Uh, All we have is the totally sufficient, totally inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God in the scriptures. And again, for the man or woman of God, they are totally sufficient. Totally sufficient. Again, more on that in a moment. In the meantime, look again at what David says in verse 4. We've seen his desperation. Now we see his declaration. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? The confidence is building here. It's growing. A firm foundation is beginning to be fixed beneath him. What can mere man do to me? Answer, a lot. We can slander each other. We can lie about each other. We can betray each other. We can lie to each other. We can deceive one another. Humans can oppress Abuse, torture, rape, and murder one another? The residents of Nob found that out real quick, didn't they, with Doeg? Man can do many things to man in the here and now. In the flesh is what this word means. In the temporal realm. But when placed up against an infinitely holy and eternal God, man is considered as nothing more than mere. Mere. Mere men, mere Adam, mere little fleshly creatures of the reddish dirt, men of dust. And it's the same today. Even the lives of the strongest, wealthiest, most powerful men living on earth today, living on this earth at this moment, are but a vapor. They're, they're, they're a vapor, they're a mist, dust, ashes, like a flower floating in the breeze, grass that covers the field one minute and is scorched by the burning sun the next. You know, even Saul himself, he'll be dead in just a few short years from now. He's going to be dead. This is David saying, man, this is not a good situation here. But ultimately, I'm a child of the Most High God. The eternal Elohim who spoke the very worlds into existence, who was and is and is to come. Why am I fearing fleshly man? Why am I fearing men? Now, I know I'm not invincible in the ultimate sense of the word, but I'm invincible here until God in his providence determines for me to be with him, right? We're all invincible until God says, come home. All of us. What can they do? What can man do to me? Like Paul says, if, if I die, if they kill me, far better. Why am I sweating this? In God I trust, David says. I shall not be afraid, David says. Now, in order to trust God, you have to first know God, right? We'll touch on that later. In a later refrain in verse 9. For now, David says, I shall not be afraid. What can they do to me? This reminds me of John Rogers. Have you heard that name? No, you've heard that name. First martyr under the reign of Mary Tudor of England, or Bloody Mary. First sentenced to five months of house arrest, then put into prison the next year, all for 
translating the Old and New Testaments into English, denying both papal supremacy over the church and the real presence of Christ in the consecrated bread and wine of the Eucharist. Roger said, Christ is the true head of the church, not the pope. The pope is not the supreme, supreme head in forgiving sins. In fact, he has no authority to forgive sins at all. And the bread and wine are just that. They're bread and wine. Symbols which point to the sacrificial death of our Lord. Therefore, he said, the Catholic Mass is nothing short of blasphemy. And I agree. Hearty amen. He was also trampled upon and attacked for having a wife and now 11 children, which, as we know, was forbidden by the Romish church for anyone who had taken the sacred vow of priesthood. Now, in January of 1955, Rogers was found guilty of heresy and sentenced to death. Upon his sentencing, he had but one request to make, that before he was burned at the stake, he wanted to see his wife and bid her one final farewell. To which his captors replied, no. But later they said, actually, you can see your wife and even your entire family again. In fact, we will give you a full pardon. All you have to do is renounce your Bible translation and recant of your teachings against the papacy and the doctrines of the mother church. But now it was Roger's time to reply, no. Now Roger's replied, no. Rogers remained steadfast in the convictions of his faith. What could mere men do to John Rogers? Well, apparently they could throw him into house arrest, throw him into prison, sentence him to death by fire, then tempt him to doubt that which he knew to be true about his Lord, even dangling his wife and children before his eyes to spur him on to do so. Come on, John. Just say that the Pope is the head of the church. Just say that the sacraments are the consecrated body and blood of our Lord, and and you can have it all back. But Roger said, no. No. What can mere man do to me? Nothing in the life to come. Even Jesus Christ himself said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, right? Don't fear him. Don't fear man. John Fox tells us the the day when the sentence was carried out, I'm paraphrasing here, on February 4th, 1955, John Rogers was taken to Smithfield, England for his execution. In those days, they would march preachers right through the streets of the city, right in front of their congregations as, as an example of the same fate that awaited anyone who dared challenge the authority of the church. Now, Fox tells us that as John Rogers walked through this crowd, that his last wish was in fact granted as his wife and 11 children, including one whom he had never met before, a daughter born to him while in prison, were all watching him as he marched to his death. Reciting by memory the 51st Psalm, as the crowd, including his wife, were wonderfully rejoicing at his faithfulness with, quote, great praises and thanks to God for the same. Fox said that when the fire was put to him, when, when tied to the stake and the fire was put to him, and when it had taken hold of 
both his legs and his shoulders, he, as one feeling no smart, no pain, washed his hands in the flames, though it had been cold water. After lifting up his hands to heaven, not lowering them until the fire had consumed them, this happy martyr calmly yielded up his spirit into the hands of his heavenly Father. Among those in the crowd that morning was an unbelieving French ambassador who later recalled the steadfastness of both Rogers and his congregation. Listen to what he wrote here. On this day, there was a man named Rogers who was burned alive for being a Lutheran. But he died persisting in his convictions. At his conduct, the people of the assembly took such pleasure that they were not afraid to make him many exclamations, encouraging him and strengthening him to remain steadfast. Even his children assisted at it comforting him him in such a manner that it seemed as if he had been led to a wedding. End quote. This is reminiscent of David's cry in Psalm 56. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Notice he shifts the focus back to these foes in verse 5. He ponders them. He thinks about them for a bit. He thinks about what they're doing to them. And then he details how they think they are having victory over him, which they are for a season. That's why he's alone in this cave for now. But it's just a temporary victory. It's just a momentary affliction. Listen as David goes on to describe his foes in more detail. This is all prayer, by the way. This is all a prayer to, to the Lord. All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack. They lurk. They watch my heels as they have hoped to take my life. In verses 1 and 2, they trample. They oppress. They attack me all day long. Here they attack me through slander. They lie and they lie in wait. They want to kill my character first. Then they want to kill my body. These are wicked men indeed. So he fights these opponents, not with Goliath's sword, but now upon his knees, now praying to his God. On account of their wickedness, will they have an escape? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is no, they will not have an escape. For God will judge the wicked. Ultimately, to attack the Lord's anointed is to attack the Lord himself. He'll deal with them. So here in verse 7, it should come as no surprise when David again leaves the vengeance to the Lord God and says, in anger, bring down the peoples, O God. Again, not in blind rage, not in a sinful anger, but in a righteous indignation. Exercise a just anger against those and that which you find to be abhorrent, is what David's saying here. Bring them down, O God. Bring them down down from their place of lofty arrogance, down to the realm of the dead. Alan Ross said, uh, while this kind of prayer might make the modern believer uncomfortable, it is a righteous prayer for God to honor his word and defend his cause from those who are continually trying to destroy it. That's a good quote. This final descriptor of his pursuers doesn't last long, however. As David then returns to the 
overwhelming confidence graciously given him by the Lord. As he says in verse 8, you have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This may seem strange, uh, but it wasn't uncommon in those days for mourners to actually bottle their tears and and, and put them in wineskins or other similar containers, and then they'd place those containers at the grave sites of loved ones as a testimony of their intense mourning. See how much I've mourned? I'm going to put this over there. Uh, These were observable symbols for others to see how much the departed man or woman was loved and now grieved over. Modern archaeologists have even found such vessels as these. David is saying to the Lord, put my tears in your bottle, O Lord. In other words, you've seen my pains. You've seen my trials and tribulations. You've seen the anguish of my soul, the many tears that I've shed. Put those tears in your bottle. Remember my sufferings when you make your determination as to what to do with my enemies. That's what this means. Are my wanderings not in your book? Now, this is metaphorical language. The omniscient God has no such bottles, nor does he need any such book to record our trials. He knows them all. He knows all things about all people throughout all time. <clears throat> this is simply David saying, Remembering my, remember my sufferings. And if you do, you'll see my desperate need for you to fight for me. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. All right, now I want you to look at verses 9 through 11. This is the culmination of this entire psalm. Really, even a turning point in this cave. This is where things all begin to change. If you you go back to 1 Samuel 22, you'll see this particular cave is where it all starts to shift. Everything for David shifts. Over the next few months and years, David's family and friends will start coming out of the woodworks. He gets an army together, goes into other cities, conquers them. He has an opportunity to slay King Saul twice. He doesn't do it. He gains a wife. He even comes back to Gath. You believe that? He comes back to Gath and is now friendly with King Achish. Yeah, it says, and the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now they're friends. But you can read all about that in 1 Samuel 23. It's really fascinating, actually. For now, I want you to go back to this cave, back to the turning point, to the godly confidence in crazy times. Look what David says in the second half of verse 9. Look at it in your own Bibles. This I know. God is for me. This I know. Not this I think. Not this I'm pretty sure of. Not, well, according to my calculations, there's a good chance that God is with me here. Not even according to what that priest told me back there. Not this I hope. Not this I desire. But this I know. I am convinced, I am positive, I am certain, I have resolved, I have determined that God himself is in fact for me. God is against the wicked, yea, he hates the wicked. He says so in Psalm 5 and Psalm 11. But in his grace, in his amazing grace, he has declared me righteous. 
He's declared me righteous by my faith, my God-given faith. And as we learned last week, he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Not in the eternal sense, anyhow. This I know. God is for me. I have all the confidence in the world that he will vindicate me. He will deliver me. Even if it does mean that I will perish from this life, even if they do kill me, that vindication will come in the next life. That's what this means. I love these words here. This I know. This I know. Oh, such sweet assurance in these words. Can you say the same thing this morning? That's what I want to ask you. Can you say the same thing? How can I know, you say? How can I be so sure? How can you be so certain, David? Listen now. David knows that God is for him because he knows God. And he knows God because he knows God's word. In God... In Elohim, God Almighty, who spoke the very heavens and earth into existence, I trust. I know this God. I know He is all-powerful. I know He is all-sovereign, all-infinite, all-righteous, all-wise. I know He sees my affliction. That's what He told Moses. I read about it. I know He's eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. Moses wrote that in Psalm 90. I read it. He, he revealed this to me in his word. I, I praise the eternal God for revealing himself to me and his promises to me in his word. I praise his word. Notice he even uses the, the personal name of God here, the, the covenant-keeping name of the great I Am. In Yahweh, Jehovah, whose word I praise. David knows God is for him because David knows God. And he knows God because he, know who God, he knows who God has re- revealed himself to be in his word. Do you, you all have your Bibles with you? Do you have them? I don't want to sound like Joel Osteen there. Everybody got your Bibles? No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But don't hold them up now. That's over. I'm not going to do that. Forget what I just Do you have your Bible sitting on your lap? Good. Do you realize the gift that's been given you from above? that sits on your lap right now. At this very moment, do you recognize the gift that you have in those scriptures? Again, James Boyce said, you and I do not have individualized revelations from God delivered to us today by God's prophet. We just don't. We have the Bible. But the Bible we have is more extensive than David's. It contains all we need to know about spiritual things. Equally important, we have the Holy Spirit to give us understanding about what has been written as well as the ability to apply it to specific areas in our lives. To to truly know God, you must be in the Word of God as much as you possibly can every day. This is how God speaks to us. God has said, here's how I'm going to speak to you. This sermon, as I preach it now, it's just supplemental. It's just an edifying word. You can't survive off one sermon a week. Even ten sermons a week. 
We don't even scratch the surface of these texts in 45 to 50 minutes. We don't even scratch the surface. No, no, you need to be in the Bible for yourself. That Bible which men like John Rogers and Wycliffe and others gave their lives for so that you could sit there with it on your lap right now and read it in your own mother tongue without having to depend on some priest to tell you what it says. They gave their lives for this. Be like a sponge. Let, let the word saturate every area of your life. Every day, by any means, reading it, listening to it, remembering passages, memorizing passages, praying over them. Read it for yourself. Read it for yourself. It will never be a waste of time to commune with the true and living God through prayer and the reading of his word. Time is never wasted when you're reading the holy and inspired scriptures. You know that? And then doing what it says and applying it to your life. For true believers, the reading of God's word is never a waste of time. Because it's in the word of our God then we, that we learn about the character of our God. It's in the knowledge of the character of our God that leads us to the trusting of our God. And it's the trusting of our God that allows us to stand upon a a firm foundation when the crazy winds and waves of this world inevitably come crashing upon our houses. Do you understand that? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. What more can be said to you than God has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus has fled, fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. I am thy God, will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Don't take my word for it. Don't take the hymnist's word for it. Take God's word for it. He said it in his excellent word. He will not let the righteous be shaken. God is for me. God is my refuge. God is my strength. God is my stronghold. Yahweh, the great I am, is my mighty fortress. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He has an unfailing love for those who are his. This I know God is for me. And remember, when David says this, he didn't have the revelation that we do concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God sent into the world, his very own son, whom he sent into this world to become sin, to be made sin so that all who believe in him, so that all who would have faith in the promises and the word of God, including David, could experience being made righteous being justified in his sight for all of eternity. David didn't have Paul's elaboration on these very words from Psalm 56 when he said, God is still for his people. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? Same words, same thing. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Paul says to David, you're exactly right, David. That's right. Who's against us? 
He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't know that to be true as David did, as Paul did unless he reveals it to you by the strength of his spirit and the power of his word. If it didn't come through those two things, it's not real. You you don't get saved by the words of some preacher. Okay? Preachers are a dime a dozen. We we don't save people. Someday I'll I'll be gone and there will be another man standing here, hopefully saying the very same thing. Don't take my word for it. Don't blindly take what I say and just trust it. Go examine the scriptures for yourself. Uh, Read them yourself. Study them for yourself. To to neglect these scriptures. And the power that lies within will produce nothing more than a wasted life. It'll be a wasted life. And then... Eternity. All eternity. When you'll have wished that you had spent more time in them. Let me show you something here. Let me show you something. You see this Bible? I know I've shown you this before. But I'm going to show it again because I like to show it. And I don't want the same thing to happen to you. This is a Bible that my grandpa Chuck gave me. Uh, that he originally gave to his parents sometime in the 1970s, meaning this Bible is about 50 years old. You see a problem with it? Yeah. It looks like it's brand new. In fact, the wear that's on here is by me taking it out of this bag and saying, let me show you something. It's brand new. Chuck said when he, gave it, when he went to get it from his parents' house after they died, it was right there in the same box, in the same place, year after year after year. And when he first showed it to me, I, and I saw the tears in his eyes, I thought, oh, that's one of the saddest testimonies I have ever heard. And then the same thing happened to me. As most of you know, my mom passed away this January. She was 62 years old. The last three years of her life, she spent enduring some of the worst physical suffering I have ever seen a person go through, a human being go through. And when I went to clean out her house, there it sat. This Bible that Lindsay and I got her in 2014, which means this is 
almost 10 years old, which only collected dust in her downstairs closet. This is a a 10-year-old Bible here. To Victoria, Mama, by Matthew and Lindsay, from Matthew and Lindsay. On the occasion of, this book has the words of eternal life. We wanted to share them with you because we love you. Date, February 27th, 2014. My brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you to not neglect this book. There's nothing in this world as important as the words of this book. Nothing. Nothing. In this book, both the character of God and the perfect plan of redemption from God is revealed. This is how he tells you, here's how to be with me for all of eternity. How could we possibly neglect this book? Look at David's word again. Look at his words again. Did his confidence stem from his abilities? Do you see this? Oh, he's a good athlete. Oh, he's, he's real special. Did it, what, was, it, was it his goodness? He's such a pious man. Was it his charisma? Was it his cleverness? Look how he can evade Saul. What is it? Was it his looks? Did the, did the confidence in this moment come from his might? He was carrying Goliath's sword for Pete's sakes. This man slayed bears and lions and giants. And yet here he was trembling in a cave. Until that moment he said, man, what am I doing? The, this, the, the right one is on my side. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. He must win this battle. This I know that God is for me. And here's how I know. Herein lies the power in God whose word I praise. In Yahweh, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. R.C. Sproul once said, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything, but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for all of eternity, and that power is focused on the scriptures. So that's the application for this morning. Get into this book. Read these words every day. Believe them. Study them. Trust in them, love them, praise them, and more importantly, praise the God who inspired them, which is exactly what David promises to do at the end of this psalm. Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will fulfill thank offerings to you. This is a Levitical fulfillment of, of these sacrifices. You have delivered my soul from death. Again, this is an etern- we're talking about eternal things here, not just temporal. This world, whew, I don't even know what to say. 
You have delivered my soul from death. Indeed, my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. He hears the words. He believes the words. He remembers the words. He's strengthened by the words. Is saved by the power of God through the word. Then he becomes a doer of the word. He walks in the light. He walks before God in the righteousness given him by God. Now, for us, the closing application is almost too easy. For our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, tells us how we are to walk in the light. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. We follow Christ. We don't follow other men. We follow Christ. You want an unwavering confidence in these crazy times? It will only come by grace alone, through faith alone, in the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The Lord Jesus Christ who has revealed himself and told us exactly how to follow him in his excellent word. Do you know him? Do you know his word? That's what I want to ask you. Do you know the promises contained within the word of God? Do you know the promises, like the one that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe this? Do you truly believe it in your heart? Do do you know these promises? I, I would implore you to open up this book. Ask your creator to make his words crystal clear to you through the power of his Holy Spirit. I would implore you, if you never have, to ask him to save your eternal soul. Ask him to save you. Ask him to seal you. Ask him to allow you to turn from your sin, to grow as you believe in his promises and to spend the rest of your days on earth and all eternity thereafter praising his holy name for what's been done for you through Christ. And I would implore you to do so today. Amen? Amen. Let's have Noel and the music team come up. Close us in.